0: Titus chapter 2 in your Bibles. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Paul told Titus what he ought to preach, why it should be preached, how it should be preached, and when it should be preached in these few verses. What should be preached? The things that become sound doctrine, which are then listed in the following verses down through verse 10, Titus chapter 2. Why it should be preached? Because it's to protect and beautify the doctrine of God and to protect His name from blasphemy by those who find out that we're Christians if our lives are not consistent with Bible Christianity. That's why. And it tells us that in verse 5, The last part of the verse, that the word of God be not blasphemed. It tells us that in verse 10, the last part of the verse, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. It tells us that in the last part of verse 14, that Jesus Christ redeemed us to purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. That's the why. The what are the duties given to aged men, aged women, young men and young women, and preachers. In the first ten verses. The why is to protect the gospel in God's name. The how is in verse 15. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. So it's to be presented directly, plainly, and with authority from Jesus Christ. And how often? When? When should it be preached? Chapter 3 and verse 8 says, this is a faithful saying in these things that I've just been over. I will that thou affirm constantly. So it's to be preached constantly or often that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. This is Bible Christianity. This is what I'm supposed to preach. This is what I am preaching to you right now. I began this morning with 1 John chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. That tell us that we are the sons of God, and if we have a proper realization and hope of that, we will purify our lives even as He is pure. God has adopted us to be His children. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And so we ought to live like the sons of God. We're going to see some verses today that tell us that. We want to honor and glorify the God of heaven who adopted us. The world does not know us because it did not know Him. There is a drastic gulf between us and the world. If that gulf is minimized in your mind or in your conduct, you are wrong. There is a great gulf between them and us. There is no comparison. They do not think the way we think. They do not speak the way we speak or live the way we live. Our lifestyles should be very different. They are not thankful to the God of heaven for the things in their lives. They are thankful to all other sorts of persons, or they're not thankful at all. And on and on we could go. There's a great difference. They do not know us because they didn't know Him. They could not recognize God in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, and being supported by angels for three and a half years of a perfect ministry on earth. They could not recognize Him. They were so blind to them and they will not recognize us, but we want to show them our good works so that if they know that we're Christians, at least we'll have given them a testimony of what a Christian looks like and it should be the character of our Father in Heaven who adopted us. So let us labor toward that end. In Titus, we have verse 1 and that is the verse that convicted me the most that led me to these sermons. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. This is a ministerial epistle, a pastoral epistle. It's written from Paul to Titus, whom he left in the island of Crete to set in order the things that were wanting in the churches and cities of that island in the Mediterranean Sea. And he told Titus to speak or to teach or to preach the things that he's about to list as being things that fit or are appropriate for sound doctrine. Doctrine is a body of teaching. The teaching of Jesus Christ is compatible with these things. These things are agreeable and fit with the teaching of Jesus Christ. This is Christianity. And Titus, speak thou these things. When you preach, preach these things and preach them constantly and preach them with a lot of authority and address the different parties in your audience to tell them how they ought to be living to please the God who adopted them. That's what verse 1 means. And then it directly it goes into what things Paul wanted Titus to teach his people. They're in Crete. The aged men we went over, they're to be sober and grave. That means to be dignified and serious, temperate, self disciplined, sound in faith, in charity, in patience, sound men. They know the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they hold it dear. They're sound in charity. They practice godly charity toward others. Old men ought to be an example of this. They're not just interested in their little lives. They're interested in other people's lives. And they're they're looking out for the best interests of others in the church. They're sound in patience. They endure their afflictions with a cheerful attitude. Let me go on to the aged women. We went over these things last Sunday. The aged women, likewise. Titus, you have things to teach them as well. That they be in behavior. Their behavior should become holiness. That means be fitting holiness, or be appropriate, or agreeable with holiness. Not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. You older women in the church, let me address you again for a couple of minutes. I emphasized last Lord's Day that you shouldn't be false accusers, and I mentioned The habits that some women fall into of spending too much time with emails and phone conversations when there's much more that they could be doing that the Lord expects them to be doing than yakking on the phone more than for a few minutes. You are to be using your time wisely because there's so many things you could and should be doing that bear profit. I went over that. You're not to be given to much wine. I don't know of any problem in our church of the aged women being given to much wine. That means to be addicted to, or prone to, or vulnerable to heavy drinking. I don't know of it. If someone knows about it, then hear the words that they're in the Word of God. But we have a problem with the next clause. Teachers of good things. If you are not a teacher of good things, older women, you are failing your calling. You are not fulfilling your role. You are not living a holy life the way God defines a holy life. God is little concerned that you are holy yourself if you do not have a holy interest in the holy lives of the younger women in this assembly. Praying for them is not enough because prayer is not mentioned in Titus chapter 2 and verse 3. You are to be a teacher of good things. That is fulfilling your role as an aged woman. You must be a teacher of good things to young women as much as avoiding much wine and as much as avoiding slander. I am thankful that our women are not slanderous. I'm thankful that our women aren't given to heavy drinking. I'm not thankful that our aged women are good teachers of the younger women in the things that follow in verses 4 and 5. Because our aged women are not very good at it. They're too quiet. God does not care for quiet women. Except when you're around men. There's no room for quietness when you're around women. A meek and quiet spirit is what a woman is to show toward her husband in First Peter chapter 3. Quietness in the assembly is what a woman shows when we're corporately worshiping God. But when you aged women are around other women, especially young women, there's no place for quietness. You ought to be opening your mouth and feeding many. The righteous are a tree of life and they feed many. And so I address you older women on the importance of that clause in the last part of verse three, teachers of good things, That they may teach the young women, and it goes on to tell you, like it tells me, what things ought to be taught. I love it when the Lord is that simple and plain to us. He's telling who the teachers ought to be, the aged women, and for the sake of the illustration, let's say 50 and older. And it tells you who the audience is, the young women, let's say 50 and under, for the sake of the illustration and the point, and what you ought to teach is in verses 4 and 5. A holy woman is not content with being holy herself because that's not enough. You need to be a teacher of good things. And you should be teaching marital and domestic holiness to the younger women. That kind of teaching requires these things out of you. Discernment. You have to look through the congregation and look at the women and spot where there are weaknesses. That's discernment. You discern where a woman may not be treating her husband the way she should, or treating her children the way she she should, or not fulfilling some of these other things the way she should. You should discern it. You should have the courage to go up to that younger woman and tell her that she's wrong, and tell her some of your experiences, where you failed, some of the things you tried that worked, and what the Word of God has to say about it. The Lord has not called you to be a Bible preacher but the Lord has called you to give your practical experience to other young women. It takes courage to do it. To walk up to some young woman and say, I've been observing the way that you treat your husband, and I believe you could do a better job. I remember when I was your age, or a little older, or a little younger, and I had trouble with that same matter, and here's how I addressed it. You say, well, I sound like I'm holier. That's right, you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be holier. That's what it said here. The aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. Amen. That's, just, that's the fear of the devil. That thought that comes up in your heart, I'm going to appear holier than they are, that's not from the Holy Spirit. That's not from a good conscience. That's from an evil conscience that's trying to give you an excuse to not do your Bible duty. It takes courage. It takes explanation, which means you have to open your mouth and speak words and sentences. You have to explain things. I saw this. I've experienced this. This is what the Bible says, and here's how we can do it as women in the year 2008. It takes instruction. Sister, daughter in Christ, this is what you ought to do. For the next week or for the next month, will you try to do these things to be a better woman for Jesus Christ, to be a better daughter of God, to be a better wife, to be a better mother? It takes correction. What you're doing is not good. What you're doing is not going to work. What you're doing is not right. It takes warning. If you keep that up, or because you've done that, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if your husband is bitter. And if you keep it up, he's going to get more bitter. And you're going to cost your marriage relationship. This is what teaching requires. Discernment, courage, explanation, instruction, correction, and warning. You aged women, don't hide behind fear. Fear is not from God. Fear is from the devil. It's not from a neutral source. It's from the devil. It's from your flesh. Because why would you be afraid to do what God has told you to do? Don't hide behind personality weakness. God doesn't care about your personality weakness. You've got to do it. If I were to hide behind my personality weakness, I would avoid people. I never wanted to be a pastor. I still don't want to be a pastor, except out of fear of God and wanting to serve Him. Don't hide behind personality weakness. If you're quiet and you don't know how to talk, it's because you had negligent parents who did not force you to talk. And I'm sorry for that, but now is the time for you to listen to your Heavenly Father and what He has for you aged women in Titus chapter 2, and verse 3, the last four words. Don't hide behind bad habits. If you haven't been doing a good job for the first 50 or 60, 70 years of your life, then change it, just like the rest of us have to change when we read these verses. I know that the aged women have errors. You know that you haven't been a perfect wife and you haven't been a perfect mother. And do you know how the devil uses that? He throws fiery darts to say that you can't tell anyone else what to do because you've made mistakes yourself. Of course you have. Don't you think the young women know that? How in the world do I get up here? And I'm nothing. If I were to let the past and my sins so affect me that truth is no longer truth and right is no longer right because I shouldn't speak it, because I've made mistakes and I wouldn't be here. No no one man could ever speak. Right. David said, Forgive me, Lord, and I will teach transgressors your ways. Peter on the day of Pentecost jumped up and the day before Pentecost jumped up and said, Men and brethren, we have some work here to do and some sober work. We need to replace Judas Iscariot. The whole crowd could have said, Who are you to tell us what to do? You're just the one that denied Jesus 30 days ago. We're not going to listen to you 45 days ago. Women, aged women, don't think that. That is from the devil. They know you've made mistakes, but you know what? Mistakes are a great teacher. You can commiserate with younger women and say, I tried I tried what you're doing and it doesn't work, and here's what happened, and I want to tell you from the voice of experience to change your ways. The young women are discouraged and defeated when they expect this to happen, and it doesn't happen. You aged women over 50. There's a problem taking place right now at this moment. I am preaching to a mixed multitude. Of aged women and young women. And all the young women are hearing what aged women ought to do. So after this service, the young women are going to be expecting you aged women to be a little bolder in coming to them and helping them. And if you don't, you're really going to discourage and defeat them. You know, it's true of every category here. You know, when we address fathers, all the children are sitting there. I wonder if dad's listening to this. When we address husbands, wives are sitting there, I wonder if my husband is listening to this. And when you go home and you don't change anything, do you know what your children and your wives know about you? You don't fear God. There is no fear of God in your heart. That's right. Because if there's a fear of God, you would humble yourself to the Word of God and make an attempt to change. Right. The young women get discouraged and defeated, and I'm telling you from knowing them. Aged women, I'm telling you from knowing them. They would sit at your feet and lap up every word that you would utter if you would open your mouth. You are going to die and be buried and be worthless outside of your very limited scope of things, but the Lord gave you a larger scope of things. In this church, we limit your participation verbally in our public assemblies. We limit. We don't have Sunday school teaching positions for you. But I'll tell you, God's given you a teaching position, and it should be exciting You know, for those of you that have been married 30, 40, and 50 years, you have things to tell young women that have only been married 3, 4, or 5 years. You could talk to them and, and help them. Young women do not know these things, or these things wouldn't need to be taught. A young girl doesn't get married and all of a sudden know all these things to love her husband. She needs to be taught how to love her husband. A brother stood in the pulpit and tried to teach women how to love their husbands by being submissive. And he did the right thing because it's biblical. And I loved his words. However, the main source of teaching ought to come from aged women. You have a lot to offer. You've learned a lot of tricks of the trade. And I mean that very reverently about holy marriage. You've learned that... Oh, listen, you've learned... Every wise man knows that an older one — Listen, I'm going to try to be discreet. Every man that has his wits knows that an aged woman is far better than a young woman. Oh, just thinking about it is scary. Young women do not have a clue. They are totally clueless and you can imagine any part of their life whether it's the first time they make gravy and you pick up the gravy bowl and you turn it upside down and nothing comes out you make great gravy as an aged woman and i meant that very kindly she i hope everyone knows that she's able to take are you Able to take that. That's talking about gravy. Under the sheets, a young woman doesn't have a clue, and it takes her years. None of that comes natural. Natural is failing. It takes practice. It takes instruction. An old woman knows how to make... An aged woman... This sounds better, doesn't it? Aged. Like good wine is aged. Aged women sounds better than old women. An aged woman knows how to make good gravy and can give you hints on what went wrong that day. I could have laid bricks. And so it applies to loving your husband, loving your children. A young woman, when she first gets her baby, she has this precious baby that has been inside her for nine months and she has these emotions churning toward it and for it and those are good, but they need to be guided Because you can love the baby too much. Mm -hmm. If, if the love of the baby encroaches upon the love of your husband, you're loving the baby too much. Oh yes, you can love the baby too much. That's a temporary relationship. You were not made to be a mother. You were made to be a wife. Genesis 2 is about you. And that is, it is not good for the man to be alone. You were made to be a companion for him. Those things are taught. An aged woman is better in every measure. And you have a lot to offer. And I'm trying to encourage you right now. And the young women are hearing me. And the young women have told me they would sit at your feet and listen to your words if you would just talk to them. They would esteem you. They would listen to your words. They would take in what you have to give them. Because they know that you've been there where they haven't been yet you've been 20 years down the road or 30 or 40 or 50 when they've only been a few months or a few years. These things wouldn't need to be taught unless they're needed to be taught. These things don't come by nature. They need to be taught by experienced women. And if experienced women were to teach younger women, then the young women of this church, when they are aged, would be better than the aged women in our church. And thus it would be every generation we would be improving our stock as a church of Jesus Christ. Us men are not us men are not ashamed to say we want our sons to outstrip us. And I hope all you aged women want these young girls to outstrip you as wives and mothers. Tell them how to do it. They would love to hear it. They would love to hear your trade secrets. Whether it's gravy or the bed. Tell them. They're going to bed every night. There's nothing to be ashamed of about that. Only you're ashamed of talking about it. Because you had pitiful parents, and I'm sorry that you were cursed. The Bible's very open about it. Do you know that the Song of Solomon is in the Bible? Do you know that Proverbs 5 is there in 1 Corinthians 7? There's nothing to be ashamed of. Talk to the younger women. They're doing it every night. Help them do it right. If our young women in this church do not turn out to be what they should be, it is your fault, and you will give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you look around and you see a young woman not treating her husband the right way, not treating her children the right way, you can blame her, but the fault lies with you, according to this text, that you're to be teaching her. Every man and every woman and every young man and every young woman will bear his own burden. However, you'll be an accomplice in their weakness because you didn't teach them when you could have and you should have. They want to be learned. They want to learn. They want to be taught what works and what doesn't work. If we're the body of Christ, then the other young women in this church are your little sisters, or they're your daughters. Doesn't that motivate you? I consider your children my children, and I hope that I talk to them and treat them the way that I do my own. The young women in this church should be like your little sister. Hey, little sis, why don't we go out to lunch let me tell you a few things About loving a man. About making gravy. About loving children. About being chaste. About being discreet. About being good. About being a keeper at home. I've noticed that you're running around a lot. I get calls from you all over town. You ought to be at home. Let me go out and talk to you about it. If we're the body of Christ, that's the way it should be. The aged women cannot go through life just sitting in church and fulfilling their own family duties and think they've done what the Lord wants. And I know what I've just done is add a burden to your life, but it's a pleasant burden and it's a burden God laid to your life, not me. And he'll reward you for it. That's right, that's right. And let, We need you. We need you. We need you. Young women, aged women, this is what young women should know to be Sober. Verse four: Love their husbands, love their children. Discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. And it's that last part that I'm really after in these messages. If we don't do this right, then we give opportunity for the word of God to be blasphemed. Th- those words, the word of God be blasphemed, are from Second Samuel chapter twelve and verse fourteen, where. The prophet Nathan said to David, because of this sin of adultery and murder, you've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. But the same thing is true if the aged women aren't teachers, and if the young women don't conduct themselves this way, then the Word of God can be blasphemed. And that's what we want to avoid, because we want to protect the doctrine of God and God's name by living in such a way that nothing can be laid to our charge that is contrary to Scripture. Young men... Likewise, exhort to be sober-minded. Titus, teach the young men to be sober, which is to be serious about life. You are so full of foolish talking and jesting, joking, goofing off, hanging around. And yet the Bible says, exhort young men to be sober-minded, because life is serious. We went over that. Then we have, we have the minister in verses seven and eight, Titus himself, in all things, showing thyself, Titus, a pattern of good works, And so on, describing his duties, servants in verses 9 and 10 about their performance on the job so that the doctrine of God is adorned in all things. Every day you men go to work, you can adorn the doctrine of God because every time someone finds out that you're a Christian, they're going to be measuring your work standards and you ought to be the best employee at your place of employment. That should be exciting to you to be the best for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake, let the promotions come. The Lord gives promotions. But for the Lord's sake, be the best at your place of employment. Look at Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs chapter 24. You heard some things I said last week, and I know you heard them. It's been said, and I think it's been well said, that the only Bible some will read are the lives of the Christians they meet. Let's show them... A living Bible. Do you know where we're called living epistles? Or epistles written with the Spirit of the living God in Second Corinthians chapter 3? I preached a message to you about that once. Second Corinthians chapter 3, that we ought to be living epistles. Paul said, I don't need a letter of commendation to you, brethren. And I don't need a letter of commendation from you. There's already been an epistle written that is known and read of all men. The changed lives of the Corinthians prove that I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ and that you are God's children. Amen. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. It's a little confusing to some readers in, through that chapter, but it's really pretty simple. We want to be living epistles. Look, these, these are the words I want us to get. I, I, am, I am overwhelmed by the number of times they appear in the Bible. Known and read of all men. Because my point is, how much influence we can have with the people we meet. Known and read of all men. There it is. In Second Corinthians chapter 3, Living Epistles. Proverbs 24. Here's what I want from it. Verse 30. I went by the field of the slothful, and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns, and nettles had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instruction. I want that 32nd verse. Solomon said, I went by the fields and vineyards of a lazy man. I saw. He used his eyes. He saw. I considered what my eyes saw. I looked. He used his eyes to look. And I received instruction. I learned a whole lot without any words. All I had was a picture. And the picture was nettles growing where they shouldn't, a broken wall being fallen down where it should be standing up, and I received instruction. My point being, what you do and the picture of your life, the world sees and makes a decision on what kind of a person you are and what kind of a Christian you are and whether the God of heaven is worthy of their interest or attention. Solomon realized, verse 33, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. How did he learn all that? Did he have to go into the bedroom? No. Did he have to peek through the window? No. Did he have to measure when his alarm clock went off? No, no, no. He was able to see a picture by the man's fields. What does the world see by the picture of your life? How clean is the trunk of your car? You say, who cares what the trunk of my car looks like? God does. And so will someone when they ask you at work, I don't have a trunk big enough to get this home. Will you help me haul this home to my house? You live near me. Could you help me drop this off? And you walk out of work with this box that they want you to haul home, and you pop the lid on your trunk, and there's diapers from your child from three years ago, and other paraphernalia, or whatever else is in your trunk, you're you're a disgrace. You are a disgrace. You're a disgrace to God and you're a disgrace to the Gospel. Because that person in one second will see and look and receive instruction. Yes. A little, slothful, sloppy Christian. And this guy calls himself a Christian. He's a pig. Well, my trunk's clean. Okay, let's go to your garage. It's a real big box, and they live in an apartment. They want your, their box in your garage. Oh, all the way home. You're sweating. You're wiping your brow, and you've got the air conditioner on the winter. Because you're going to pull into that driveway and hit the button, and up goes the door, and whores! Oh, what's hidden in What else could be hidden in there? Is there any danger in there? I don't know if I should put my box in there. Something may come out of the woodwork and get it. I can't see the woodwork, but I hope that it's there somewhere. I'm, I'm being funny a little bit for you to be able to take it. See, Solomon said, I looked at this overgrown field and I received instruction. That man sleeps too much. When they look at your garage... You say, well, I'm not going to let anybody. If they, if they tell me at work, I'm going, to, I'm going to call a rental agency and get a rental facility for them. I'm not going to put it in my garage because I don't want them to see my garage. Well, then you're ashamed already and God already knows it, so you've already lost. They get a picture real quick. And so we want to give them a picture of godly Christianity. And Christ- godly Christianity is not sloppy nor unorganized. We want to be clean, neat, You know, they have said that cleanliness is next to godliness. That is not taught in the Bible. But cleanliness is part of godliness. Because a wise woman buildeth her house. When you read Proverbs 31, do you think she has a cluttered house? Do you think she has a cluttered kitchen? Do you think she has a garage full of junk? Never. Do you think her attic is unorganized? Not a chance. That virtuous woman of Proverbs 31 is organized, is neat, is clean, is efficient, and is running a great household. And if you're not measuring up, then anybody that sees it, in a second of time, they know that you've been a little slothful in that area. And we don't want to show anyone that. Right now I'm dealing with what I consider the concept of the issue. The concept is, actions speak louder than words. The concept is, you can be a living epistle, I can be a living epistle, and it applies to every part of our life. Because people see little parts of our lives and they make a decision about us. If you don't if you don't take care of your appearance, wearing fitting clothes, decent clothing, taking care of your makeup if you need makeup. Most women need makeup. Let me help you. If you don't do those things, then you're presenting a picture of you don't care about the glory of God. You should take care of yourself. There's no virtue in not wearing makeup, except that you don't care about other people. That's all that it says. God expects you to take care of yourself. The virtuous woman wore what kind of clothing? Silk and purple. The the women in the Bible were beautiful to look upon. A Christian woman does not look like an Amish woman, ever. There is nothing Christian about looking like an Amish. That is not modesty, that is stupidity. Why in the world was Abraham worried whenever he got Sarah around other men? Because she was dr- dressed in the gunny sack of an Amish with a bonnet over her head and Granny Clampett's boots on? Is that why Abraham was worried? Why was Abraham worried about Sarah? Because she was beautiful and he dressed her beautifully. There is nothing wrong with a woman being beautiful, and a virtuous woman is beautiful, but she doesn't dress in an alluring way to attract men to her body rather than her overall presentation of a godly woman. A woman in any decent clothing is not going to look like a man. We shouldn't put clothing on a woman to make them look like a man. We know they're women, even if they've got the bonnets on. We know they're women. We hope they are. All of this is a picture of what we present to the world. Your trunk, your garage, your appearance, your work habits, the love of your husband, the submission to your husband, the way you treat your children, the behavior of your children in public, all of this is a picture of the gospel to all those that see us. They look, they see, and they receive instruction. When you go in for an interview, men make a very quick decision. And they make that decision on... Your appearance. Are you overweight? How much are you overweight? How confident are you? Are you well made up? Do you have coordinated clothing on? Is your hair taken care of? Is your face clean? Are your fingernails clean? Do you have a firm handshake? We had these items on our interviewing forms for officers at Michigan National Bank of Detroit. There were lines to fill out. Every And we make those decisions in one second. And unless they have a resume and personal experience that can overwhelm those issues, those issues carry the day. Especially if you're around other employees are going to ever meet the public. We immediately present an image. And it's a picture. And like Solomon, other people receive instruction from it. And we want to, we want to conduct ourselves in such a way that we are always presenting a great image of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's so much that could be said on this wonderful subject. Remember the passages that were read last Sunday? In the city of Ephesus, men brought their books about sorcery. The books were worth 50,000 pieces of silver, and they burned them before all men. So the word of God grew mightily and prevailed in that city by that public example of turning from false religion. And if you turn publicly from false religion, it's going to convict others. Of course, there's going to be Alexander the Coppersmiths in every person's life that are going to know that their craft is in danger and cause an uproar. But there will be others that will be convicted by it. And fear will come upon men that it is important enough to you to change your life and actually throw something away that you once enjoyed. Or throw something away that has great value. That is the concept of it. Living epistles of Jesus Christ. God's adopted us. Let's be the sons of God. Let's go through life so that when people meet us, they say, that person must be a Christian and a real Christian, a sincere Christian, a great Christian. Look at the way they treat their wife. Did you see them over there? The way he looked at her, the way she looked back at him, the way he squeezed her bottom. Did you see that over there? Wasn't that neat? That They must be Christians. You know, the whole world, television starts it. The only time that there is a hot relationship on television, the only time that there is a hot relationship on television, what they call chemistry, what they call romance, where you're looking at each other with eyes full of lust, is always and only unmarried people. It is never, never... In any program, the husband and wife. That's right, right. That is right. My wife has this little expression that she says to me when we're driving or we're out and we see two couples, we see a couple, two people, either sitting at lunch or sitting at dinner and they're looking at each other and they're holding hands and you can tell that they're hot for each other and that they really love each other. She says, Well, we know they're not married. And it's so true. But it shouldn't be true. Let's show the world something different. That our God in heaven, who invented marriage, they don't know anything about marriage. Our God invented love. Because He is love. Our God is love. So let's show them love. Our God invented sex. They don't know anything about sex. Our God invented it. Let's show the world that we know all those things better than they do, and that we have it in fullness, and that it all works. By being living epistles everywhere we go, it should be said when two people are at a table, that must be a Christian couple. Christian couple, are you going to show that? I mean, you're showing it now, but... Um, I mean, not right now, but... very. Re- well, last night you were. Um, a brother came to me last Sunday and he said, Did you notice, Deborah? During the service, she had she was sitting, instead of at a perpendicular angle to the pew and facing forward, she had cocked herself a little bit so that she could sneak a peek. <laughs> That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Now you don't have to. Um, I'm going to tell you something, and everybody in here will say amen, those that have the courage to do it. it wears off a little bit once you get married so that you have to work at it more. Mm-hmm. Right now there's something inside of you that causes you to work at it. Amen. That wears off a little bit when you spend some of it. And so you need to work at it harder. Amen. So everything applies to you two as well. We're excited about you two. Yes. Amen. I hope that for the rest of your lives, when you sit at some little table and I don't care what you're eating, if you're sharing a saltine and a water, that the look you two have between each other and your hands... Feeling for each other's hands under the table or on the table is a picture of a Christian marriage. Now, the rest of us, how are they going to learn that and do that unless we're doing it? Unless we're showing them that? Some of you are a disgrace to Christian marriage. And you know who you are. And every one of us should go home convicted to do better. This is the commandment of the Lord. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I don't blame the Lord. I think It makes perfectly good sense to me. He adopted us and He wants to show the world, these are my children. Look at them. They are so much better than the rest of you. That isn't for their glory. It's for His glory. You people don't know how to live. You're drunkards. You're dysfunctional. You're depressed. You're divorced. Look at my children. Look at them on the job. You're guilty of stealing time. You, you come late. You're disrespectful. You steal. You don't work hard. You complain. You don't want to do your task. You try to get, assign others. You always say, but, look at my son. He's there early. He stays late. He's diligent. He's careful. He's punctual. He has integrity. He's faithful. He respects me. I mean, he respects his master. In every part of life, every part of life, every customer you deal with, Every supplier you deal with. Every employee you deal with. Every family member you deal with. You get to be a living epistle of Jesus Christ better than leaving a tract. Better than leaving one of my sweet-sounding documents. I'm saying that to all of you. And every one of you. I wish I could go back. I'm going to tell you something. I know what I'm talking about. One time in a meeting... I think I've told you this before. I want to remind you. One time in a meeting, Michigan National Bank of Detroit, I told a joke that reflected poorly on a certain segment of our society. Later in my boss's office, who was an agnostic by his own profession, he said to me, he couldn't have said anything better than this. And God forgive me, I thought you were a Christian. I know the office. I know the man. I see his face. I hear his words. I crawled from that office, the bold one who loved to run in there and tell him that he had something else done for him. I thought you were a Christian. He was an agnostic. He wasn't a Christian. He just knew what a Christian ought to act like. And he said, I thought you were a Christian. David R. Buckler, Senior Vice President, Chief Financial Officer. I know what I'm talking about, and I wish I could go back and undo some of those things, but I can't go back, but I can go forward, and I can help you to go forward with me. And you young men, you have an opportunity every day. Remember, I told you even tipping, because if you've bowed your head and prayed at a meal, you've told everyone in there that you're a Christian. Everyone. Everyone around you, if they saw you bow your head, they know you're claiming to be a Christian. The staff sees it. How you treat the staff. How well your children behave. How much you complain. How clean you are. How you leave your table. All of it reflects on the fact that you bowed your head to pray before you ate. Therefore, we ought to be careful of everything we do. Philippians chapter 2 has puts it this way. Verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved... As ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, we ought to have fear and trembling about the things I'm talking about, lest you have very many of what I just described happen to me. For it is God which worketh in you both the will and the do of His good pleasure. There are things that please God. And when you submit to a boss, it pleases God. And the worse the boss, the more it pleases God. And do you know how you got that ability inside you? God worked it in you. And we get to work it out with fear and trembling for this purpose. Verse 14, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. I was rebuked. I was justly and righteously rebuked. But we need to be the sons of God without rebuke. Harmless and blameless. No murmurings. If you ever complain about anything, you are not a Christian. Christians should be the happiest people. They should never complain. There is nothing to complain about. Would you please show me the verses in the Bible of complaining? Do all things without murmurings. That's complaining and whining and murmuring and disputings, arguing, striving, debating. Do all things without those. Because those are not Christ like character traits. So that we can be like the sons of God. We can be the sons of God without rebuke, harmless and blameless in this generation. That's the way you ought to be at Costco. That's far more important to me than how much you make or what position you have. You know that. I'm not mad. Nobody called me. (laughs) But that's that's, that's what all of us want in here. You have a great opportunity. Don't ever do what your dad did. I tried to make up for it in other ways. And I thank God for some fruit that came out of that bank, Two souls. <sighs> but I wish I could go back. Look at that. Does, it, does this motivate you at all? That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world? Ye are the light of the world. Ye are the salt of the earth. Does that excite you? Amen. This is the God of heaven saying that. This is my king, your king, yeah. saying it to you in Matthew 5, and his apostle, his favorite apostle, saying it, you know what I mean, in Philippians chapter 2. Amen. His hardest working apostle. We've got that one in Scripture. What an, what an opportunity to do this. To work out the things that God's worked in us. When he adopted us, he changed our nature. He worked in us the things that please him. Now it's our job through preaching, through the word of God, and through obedience, to work those things out in our lives. He put them in. Now we work it out. We do it with fear and trembling, lest we bring reproach upon his name, lest we give occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme, lest we give them any excuse to say that Christians are hypocrites, lest we defile the truth of this book, lest we cloud and, and stink up the wisdom of God's word. What an opportunity for us in Philippians chapter two. Are you a light? Do you shine bright in the middle of dark paganism that's all around you? Do you deal with fear and trembling? God's sovereignty worked it in. Let our obedience work it out. Godly lives declare our faith. And it's the joy of a minister when he sees his people, the people that God put under his charge, obeying. Look at what Paul said. Hold, verse 16, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. If Paul were to have preached, but the Philippians to live like the rest of the world, that his preaching would have been in vain. His preaching wasn't to populate heaven. His preaching was to convert God's children so they look like it on earth. And it could be in vain. Yea, he said in verse 17, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. He knew the Philippian church was a good church. And he said, if I was to die and my life were to be measured by the effect I've had in Philippi, I, rejo- I joy and rejoice with you all. What a wonderful opportunity. We will come back in a few minutes and take up without any introduction or warning straight into the rest of this subject. The Bible is full of it. Amen. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Ye are our epistle, known and read, of all men. Return evil for evil. Do not return evil for evil to all men. We're to show all men the religion of Jesus Christ. Amen.